Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history.
I take whatever it is to get the paid. And <laughs> that was Denise LaSalle, You Gotta Pay to Play. And I played that even though we're not talking about women and men on this particular show, on the Root and Root Show. And if you're just tuning in, this is Greg Rashid. I'm the host of the Root and Root Show. Heard Fridays and Saturdays usually at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and also on other times during the week and all. And I'm I'm doing the traveling Root and Root Show because I'm actually live right now in Denver, Colorado. And if you want to call in, the number is 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. And I'm back in my old stomping grounds where I started radio back in 2001 and I started this show back in 2012, no, 2013, started this show, but I've been on the internet since 2008. So I'm happy to be back in Denver for today, if you're listening live, and I'm honored to have, as my guest this evening, we're going to be talking about the, the baseball and unions, and we did this, I want to say first off, for some of you who listened to my show last week, we talked about the player strike of and the Players League of 1890, and we're going to move further along, and we're going to be talking about baseball's power shift, how the players' union the fans and the media changed base American sports culture, and it certainly did. And I have the honor to have on this program the author of this book, Kristen Swanson. Are you there, Kristen? I, I am, Greg. And actually, it's Christer. Uh, it's kind of an optical. Sorry, that's all right. It's an. It's kind of an optical illusion. You're not the first one to turn that into Kristen. Uh, all right, but it's huh? it's Christopher Swanson, and I'm glad to be on your show, and glad to hear you're in Denver. I love Denver. I've watched a lot of good baseball in Denver. Yeah, um, it is snowing here right now. That's another story. So if you're listening live in April, it's snowing. April 29th, it is snowing here. <laughs> but again, I want my listeners to call in at four two four six seven five eight three one five because this book really gets into the whole history of the players' union movement and getting paid, and that's why I played the first song. You got to pay to play. And I just want you, because like I was saying, we've already talked about the Players uh, League of the 18, of 1890, but I want you to tell my listeners, first of all, why did you decide to write this book about the whole issue of the union movement in baseball and trying to get the right money for the work that the players do? What made you do this? Well, it really came together as a culmination of two of my great interests or loves, um, I'm a historian. I love history. Um, I was fortunate to be able to get a PhD at UCSB in history. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to write for my dissertation, I was studying with labor historians, uh, especially a man named Nelson Lichtenstein, who's uh, very well regarded and, and kind of thinking, all right, if I'm going to do this big project, if I'm going to uh, really explore something, well, what would be interesting in labor that I could look at? And my baseball fandom started in the early 70s, and as you know from reading the book, the 70s were perhaps the penultimate period in baseball labor relations. Well, here, was, here I was, kind of a younger kid, loving this game and not understanding why it was uh, constantly being interrupted. Why did I have to always worry about a strike happening or a lockout? Why were the players so worried about free agency? Um, so I think I was just drawn to that, and I was drawn to sort of having this conversation with the generations that came before me, with fans like my grandfather, who loved baseball but really didn't understand the push for free agency and didn't understand why, uh, as I mentioned in the book, why players really deserve the right to go out and, and negotiate on the free market. Right. And um, it's funny you say, so, if I can interrupt for a minute. No, that's um, fine. I remember uh, during the strike, and 
especially the end of the 81 strike that I had a friend of mine who said to me, and he was older than me. He was about 20, 20 years or so older than me. And he was saying, you know, I really liked it when the, uh, the players, and this was his quote, when the players were slaves. And, you know, he just liked the idea that, you know, the games went on. He didn't care how much the players made if they were making much less than him. He was just happy that there was baseball. And so I, I understand what you're saying because there are a lot of folks who didn't really understand what was going on in 81 or in 72 or in 95. And so right. first off, you know, so continue what you were saying earlier. Well, just that I, you know, I, this, it's this fascinating idea, right? Like baseball is the American pastime. It's at the center of American culture. And yet it's being played by these immensely talented, popular individuals who have very little freedom to negotiate their own contract. I, I just I think I found that the more I learned about that, the more fascinated I was by this idea that that, you know, we so celebrate competition as Americans and then free market economics and all these other things. And and essentially uh, what I'd been doing the whole time, what we'd all been doing and not to criticize. I love Major League Baseball. I'm glad I'm a lifetime baseball fan. But we'd been cheering for a monopoly, for a situation that was set up fully for the advantages of the owners, uh, very much at the expense of most of the players. I mean, sure, there were guys who got paid and paid very well and got lots of endorsements and all kinds of other things. But for every one of those guys, you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, if you count all the minor leaguers that never make it and those kinds of things, uh, of guys that were basically uh, treated really pretty poorly given their skill set and given the value they were bringing to their organizations. You know, and I was growing. You know, I was growing up in the '60s as a kid, and in the early '70s. And you know, during the off season, you would see sometimes a baseball Washington, because I was from Washington D.C. You see a Washington senator at a car dealership working, or as an insurance agent. And I used to think, as a kid, that was cool. I said, God, I can see some senators at these dealerships. I can see them at the at their office and insurance agency. Then it hit me as I got older. Well, why are they doing this if they're getting paid to play baseball for six months, actually eight months, and that's their real job? And then that's really got me thinking about, well, these guys aren't being paid properly. And I started looking into the salaries, you know, going to the library because there was no Internet or anything then, and finding out that some folks were making, a lot of major league stars were making less than, my family members were at their jobs, and I just thought that was God. That's really a shame. So sure. you know, so my sure. thing is I when mean, they actually went on strike and actually started having, you know, as you say in the book, a backbone that they deserved that. Right, right, and you know, at first, Greg, that that I think once people started to learn, kind of like what you were describing about your own self in the '60s. You know, early on, the Major League Baseball Players Association had a lot of success because it was bread and butter time, right? Like, they could talk about minimum salaries, and guys who were working good factory jobs would be like, hold on a second, I'm making as much as that guy is. You know, or they could talk about their lack of a pension or their lack of a health care plan, and that really resonated with a lot of Americans. Um, The trick became, you know, kind of in my opinion, is the trick became free agency because that was a lot more abstract. And then, of course, the owners were always able to play the card of, well, every dime we give the players is another dime we have to charge you for in terms of tickets. You know, the owners were masterful at creating this idea among the fans that there was this direct link between every cent they paid a player had to come out of concessions or tickets or some other way. You know, that there were all these finite pools of money, 
and that, that there was the only connection. Well, the, the only problem with that is it flies in the face of free market economics, right? That's it. You know, bring that up people are going to – really, Right, and that's, what, you know, that's why I like the book because you really show that from the, from the perspective and how they should really emphasize what was really going on and not fall from owners who are trying to do it. And, and that's owners who, you know, you had the last of the diabetes owners, you know, like the Connie Mac type owners who did bread and butter like a stomach, like a chicken. That was it for them. The only uh, bread and butter was that team. And what you were seeing was more and more of a monopoly, as you were saying, in a corporation, that these teams were really, really corporations at the, you know, during that era. And it was great that these players finally, saying it again, as you say in the book, get it about. And I want you to talk about one of my heroes, and should be a hero, everyone who is a baseball fan, baseball historian, but he still is not in the Hall of Fame. And you put it on the page of the book, and I was saying it was Marvin Miller in baseball in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, and I, 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 you broke up just a tiny bit on me there, Greg, at the end of the question, I'm so I'm not sure, but I, I heard you asking about Marvin Miller and his right. role, and and certainly – uh, you know, I, 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 of course, am of the opinion it's a shame he's not in the Hall of Fame. I know there are lots of folks out there who, who believe that him coming in uh, really ruined the game, um, you know, kind of just destroyed it. Uh, and folks are certainly entitled to their opinions, right? Like, I'm, I'm you know, I, I understand all of that. But at the same time, his role in changing baseball, his role in helping the players be paid fairly for what they were bringing to the game, the value they were bringing, um, certainly the business of baseball has has thrived. I mean, show me the number of teams that have gone bankrupt ever versus the number of times owners have said, oh, we're about to go bankrupt. I can't stay in business. I can't do this. You know, that you, you talked about corporate ownership and the different kinds of shell games that owners could play with moving money in and out of various businesses to make their, their balance sheets look like they're actually losing a lot more money than they are. Um, so Miller was exactly what the players needed. Um, and really, uh, along with the players' union, once they realized that, that, that Marvin, you know, knew what he was doing and that the collective bargaining process could really be their ticket to success – they they right. towed the line. They followed him, and and really, it, and as a result, changed the whole business of of American professional sports. You know, you look at fantasy leagues that everybody loves playing now, and you look at uh, the the attention that's paid to all the off field issues. The NFL draft, which was just started last night and will continue tonight, we all look at those things now as so central to the business of the game because we were taught to do that. I would say by the Major League Baseball Players Association and its leader Marvin Miller. And just, I want you to talk about, elaborate on how some of the players felt at first about Marvin Miller. Because you had folks like Robin Roberts who, kind of, who got it. But there were a lot of the players, the majority of the players, that didn't, really didn't understand at first. So tell my listeners about that, you know, how they felt. Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting. First of all we, all, we all come to every situation with our own sort of background and upbringing and life experiences. And so it's it's easy to understand how some guys who came from working-class backgrounds that were union-friendly would be excited about a union, whereas guys who grew up in, in backgrounds and came from situations that were kind of anti-union um, would be more distrustful 
right? So number one, you had that. So you had guys who were just kind of distrustful of the whole union idea, period. Um, so certainly then distrustful for, uh, uh, of anybody who was, say, like Miller from the United Steelworkers, of course, this huge national union, you know, that right away would have been distrustful. And of course, the owners were always great at playing on any of those kinds of divisions, anything the owners could do to keep the players separate, to keep them from unifying behind a leader, um, to keep them, the, the owners were excellent at, at uh, fostering this paternalistic relationship with the players, kind of a father knows best kind of situation. And, and as a result, um, you know, the owners were very successful in that, in that spring of 1966 when Miller's working the training camps and trying to get the approval of the players. The owners very skillfully, you know, had sort of their more loyal parties, whether they were the team manager or an assistant coach or oftentimes a, a leading player on the roster, a highly paid star even, that were willing to speak out against Miller and lead the opposition. But you mentioned Robin Roberts, and I think that's where he and Jim Bunning get a lot of credit in terms of, uh, helping the players kind of see that it was time for this, uh, that they were lagging behind on, again, those bread and butter issues like minimum salary and pension and health care, um, that he was – those guys, Roberts and Bunning, were then able to build enough support behind Miller. Miller did a great job of working the training camps and, and assuaging the fears of enough players that uh, once the momentum and the support got rolling, um, you know – that was it. I, I was right. told, and I don't know if I'm betraying a confidence. I had a conversation with Sparky Anderson, who was, I'm fortunate to have been a neighbor of for several years here in Thousand Oaks, and he was a friend of our family. And oh, really? Sparky, yeah, Sparky. Basically, I don't talk about this in the book because I didn't. I didn't. That conversation wasn't. I never told Sparky I'm going to print this. Well, here I am talking about it. So anyway, <laughs> I might as well say it. Uh, Sparky's whole thing was once Marvin showed him he could do it. That was it. They would do anything he asked. And so if you look at the formation of the MLBPA and you look at how Miller negotiates through those first uh, those first few years where he gets independent funding uh, for the union and then he gets the improvement in the pensions and they get the bottle cap deal with Coca-Cola and they get some of those other things in place. Sparky basically said, and, and, you know, I agree with him that once the ball got rolling, players really fell in line. And they really started to realize, you know, that this was this was the way things were going to be now. And for them to get the things they wanted, and especially free agency, repealing the reserve clause, that they needed to follow Miller's guidance. And that, that, that's so incredible. That's, you know, I wish you had put that in the book with Sparky Anderson, but it, it's on here now. So it's on, it's on the show. Right. It's, you, that's an exclusive. I just gave you an exclusive, Greg. But uh, Sparky oh, was right. a really dear, dear, that. dear, dear man. I hope <laughs> – well, he probably would have said that to just about anybody. Sparky didn't hold his cards too close to the vest. Uh, no, everything was, I've read about him, though, he was uh, very open, honest, and you know he didn't he didn't back down on anything. And he, he no, he didn't, his and, and and was sure a treasured member of our whole community here in Thousand Oaks. We were fortunate to have Sparky here with us. That's that's really something. Now, talk about also, and listeners, you can join in. I'm talking to Krista Swanson, the author of the book Baseball's Power Shift. It's on the University of Nebraska Press. How the Players Union, the fans, and the media changed America's sports culture. Talk about, you know, prior to the 60s, the mid-60s, the media was basically, you know, my readings of sports media, especially baseball, was like very, you know, just fonding, fondling over all the players. The players, no matter who they were, couldn't do, they, couldn't do any wrong unless they were players of color, which is another story in itself, but... Basically, baseball players are like 
the God with some of these writers. And tell me what happened to change things. Well, I think, you know, my take as just kind of a, a, a 20th century historian is that's, that's all of this is unfolding right in this really critical time for the history of journalism. Um, you know, as the union is getting more and more successful and militancy is growing, the press period is getting more and more um, sort of, I hate to use the word cynical, but they're, they're looking at everything through a different kind of lens. You know, um, when we think about how, how the classic example everybody always talks about, right, that would go with your example of the star baseball player who got the fawning treatment from the press, you know, you look at FDR, and how there were certain things FDR did that were totally off limits, right? They were never, they right. would have never appeared in print at the time. Um, and even Kennedy, right? John Kennedy to a certain degree, similar kind of thing. And then Watergate kind of changes the game. Watergate and the Vietnam War. And I think you see some of that also in the baseball press. Now, having said that, I think in terms of how the press treated the players, you know, we, we love sports because we love to have this discussion and this argument about who's good and who's not and who's playing well and who's worth it and who's not. And, well, what if so-and-so, you know, like right now, what if the 95, was it the 96 Bulls? If the 96 Bulls played the right. 2016 Warriors, Bulls. right? Like right. We, we love arguing about all that stuff. So I think all of those kinds of things had always been fair game um, in the baseball press. But I think what starts to change, first of all, with the union, there had always been voices that were pretty skeptical and anti-union. Um, voices that were, and you talk about being friendly to the players, they were also in many cases very friendly to the owners. Um, there were certain kinds of writers who were just were going to go, whatever the owners told them, you know, the owners, after all, had established themselves as the national guardians of the game, right? They were the ones that saved it from corruption. They were the ones that, that brought in Kennesaw Mountain Landis to save it after the Black Sox scandal. That's right. We could trust the owners. And so the writers trusted the owners. And so I think, Greg, it's, that's a really interesting question. And I think you have two things happening in the early 70s. I think you have some writers who are more willing to challenge the owners because of the Watergate-Vietnam shift that's happening in the, um, in the national press. And I think you also have some writers that are really need to hang on to baseball as kind of a treasured national institution at this time when everything else is changing. And I think the result of all of that is you get this really rich dialogue that I try to bring up in the book. Um, I hope I captured all the different kinds of voices that were, were, were talking about the players and the way they were from the Koufax Drysdale holdout to the early holdouts about pension and those kinds of things into the Kurt Flood case and then the strikes of 72 and 81. And I like how you did the uh, Drysdale Koufax because uh, I had forgotten about that. But now, you know, reading, remembering how reading the local papers in the D.C. area at the time and remembering how the writers were kind of saying, well, these guys, you know, they deserve to be thrown out of baseball. Don't they appreciate the fact that they're making some money playing a kid's game? And, you know, it, it was like pitting, you know, these two legends against the fans. And in some cases, at first it worked. But people really saw later on the fact that, as you mentioned in the book, that they deserved what they got, their salaries, and much more. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, especially, I mean, consider – well, you know, the, the Dodgers, which are my team here in Southern California, let, Zang, let uh, Zach Granke go. Um, and now you get the opposite outcry, right? Like people are like, I don't care what Granke wanted. We needed him and Kershaw or we're doomed. You know, right. well, back then it was, you know, sort of this collective. There were, you know, the word collectivism, which, of course, in the 60s was code for communist. Um, 
you know, it, this is sort of a very un-American thing that Koufax and Drysdale are doing. That's the way the owners and, and you know, the entrenched interest in baseball wanted to see it. But at the same time, you flip it around and you, you can kind of picture what Dodger Stadium looked like during those seasons when Koufax and Drysdale were on the mound versus what it was like when one of the other guys pitched. You know, and, and, yes. and you can go back through the box scores of those World Series and those, and those seasons and you can see just what a big impact they had on the team. And I think relatively, I haven't done the inflation numbers on what they were looking for, but, um, you know, basically they were, they were hoping to get something in the neighborhood of $125,000 each for the season, and I think they landed on just over 100 each, uh, if, if my memory serves me correctly. That's not even close in today's dollars what that kind of talent would have brought. Oh, um, no, no way. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, can you imagine the chance to have a duo like Koufax and Drysdale? Um, you know, like I said, your Kershaw Granke of last season maybe comes close, but uh, yeah, it really something else. And a really interesting, there's a great piece by Bill Shiken in the LA Times on the 50th anniversary. If anybody wants to look that up on the web, he I'm really did a nice that. job yeah. with it. He, he got a lot of great interviews with a lot of folks who wouldn't talk to me. Um, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just, you know, I was a, just a, a, an author writing a book. You know, he's a nationally recognized writer and, and, and a good one at that. So I would encourage people to read that article if they have an interest. What, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, what did you run into problems with some owners or players when they got wind of, of you writing the book? Or was it like when no one really knew you were writing this? Well, since it was a history piece, I was fortunate because the Baseball Hall of Fame has a lot of great stuff in the archives there. Um, A lot of people don't realize, but you can go back to Cooperstown, and they're wonderful. They are wonderful. They'll find you whatever documents that you'd like to look for. Uh, They've got a great – it's the Giamatti Research Center, and it's in the back of the building, and it's just awesome. Uh, Also, Marvin Miller's papers are at NYU. Um, and I got to do a lot of research there. That was great. And then I was really fortunate that so much stuff was coming, that so many archives were coming online at that point. So Sporting News, New York Times, uh, other various papers. I even got some stuff from the Chicago Defender and some <laughs> some some uh, slightly more obscure papers and things like that really, really helped. Oh, man. But because I was relying so much on historical documents, I didn't need to do as many interviews. When I did try to get into the archives of various teams, uh, that was not popular. <laughs> so that like uh, I did try and contact a few teams directly um, to see if I could get into their historical archives, and was politely told uh, that that was that the archives were not open to the public. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I wish too that I had gotten a chance to meet with Marvin Miller. I probably, given his age at the time I started writing it, you know, and he just passed away recently. But I should have realized that my, with every passing day, my chances to meet with him were, were dwindling. Um, right. But, you know, at first I was just a grad student writing a dissertation. You know, I didn't realize I was going to have an opportunity to really make this a book. Um, but I really wish in, in hindsight that in the, you know, eight or nine years ago, I would have really should have started pushing to really try to figure out different ways to get to Marvin. That would have been really neat to get to sit down with him. I, I would say that Marvin, you know, is probably looking down, and he really appreciates that you did this book. Well, I hope done so. Great, you did a superb <laughs> job as far as bringing up the whole history, and I, you know, I don't want to get into a whole lot because I want folks to get go out there and buy this book because it's not only a baseball book; it's also a book about organizing a union, creating a union, for you know, creating your rights, getting your rights, getting what you deserve as an employee. And that's very important. 
So I just ask, I urge folks to just buy the book, you know, before because of those reasons, and not just look at it as just a well, it's just a sports book. I don't want to read it. It's more than that. And you did, Crystal, you did really a great job with this book by doing it. Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. I, I, I'm glad you found that in the book as well. I was trying to touch on a lot of different things, and I hope that came home. It certainly did. Now, I want to ask you that this is definitely not in the book, but, you know, we, you know, if you're listening live, and you can call in. I've got a few minutes with Krista. The number is 424-675-8315. And just yesterday, D. Gordon, the second baseman for the, uh, for the Miami team, baseball team, has been suspended for 80 games because of PEDs. And Justin Berlander, the pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, came out and said that he basically said that the union should do more with guys who are being caught. And I just want to know your take. Do you think there could be some changes as far as the baseball union, as far as the issue of PEDs and what, you know, with this case with D. Gordon now? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, we've had a lot going on here, and I didn't see the D. Gordon piece. And then one of my students mentioned it to me today, and I, I'm kind of a little behind me, behind on it. But PEDs is a fascinating issue because, uh, first of all, anybody who thinks that some kind of performance-enhancing thing hasn't been part of the game for a very long time, I think is kind of mistaken. When you really look oh, yeah. at what we, what we ask these guys to do, um, you know, and the amphetamine use and that kind of thing is very well documented in the 70s. And, and I'm certain if you found guys from the 50s, they would talk about the different regimens and routines and things guys would use uh, to make sure they were ready to play, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and so there's, of course, a huge link between getting paid and free agency and incentives for using PEDs. You know, it's not hard to connect those dots at all. Um, and I think the union has a really interesting role to play because if they're really serving the best interests of the players – they don't want these guys engaged in dangerous practices, right? But at the same time, they want to protect their negotiating rights. And so I think that we're in kind of this interesting uh, time for the union in terms of how it's going to walk that. Because for the health of the game, the union, I think, needs to do some things to show that they're trying to work with players to discourage the use of PEDs. But at the same time, you know, any union you're a part of has to protect its workers, and so walking that line, I think, is going to be a real challenge for the MLBPA. They've been very successful in, uh, in negotiating, in, in securing players' rights as far as negotiations and guaranteed contracts and all those kinds of things go. But they do need to, like all unions, you know, all unions do need to keep an eye out for the health of the organization. Um, and, you know, and, and they also need to look out for the security and safety of their members. So this will be, a, you're absolutely right, Greg, this will be a very interesting chapter to see how this unfolds, especially as we have more guys like D. Gordon get caught in the new agreed to um, more strict PED policy that Major League Baseball has in place. And as you said, you know, like you said too, Krista, that those of you out there that believe that this is a new phenomenon and nobody was like trying to make, get an edge or anything, Baseball history. You can go back to the 19th century. You read about guys who were taking some, you know, just drinking some of the craziest concoctions to get an edge, or rubbing, right. you know, fish oil on their arms if they were pitchers. Just doing all sorts of stuff. Eating, you know, eating these weird mixtures of food, and you know, going out in the and killing some animal that nobody would eat just because they thought it would give them strength. So, you know, it, it goes on and on. It's something that um, the late great, um, I remember uh, Buck O'Neill was saying, the Negro League great, 
they asked him, would players of his of his era in the Negro Leagues, would they have taken PEDs? He said, look, we were looking for an edge. It doesn't matter. Right. Right. It's about winning and doing what you can to beat your opponent. Absolutely. And and it's and it and I think it's it's good for people to recognize that it's always been part of the game. You it know, that certainly it, have. It, because it's so closely tied to human nature. And like you said, that desire to be successful and then when you throw in the possibility of a contract year and some of those other things, um it, you know, it's the more human side of the game, right? It's where we realize that we have to deal with our frailties and our imperfections and try and find the best way forward. And it's a short, it's a short lifespan uh, in any sport, baseball in particular, it's short. So you want to get all that you can while you can. Right. But Christopher, I just want to thank you again for coming on today and writing this book. And if anyone wants to contact you to talk to you more about it, how can they reach you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Christopher Swanson. Uh, and uh, I uh, also um, pretty reachable through my work address, which is really easy to remember because it's my whole name, Christopher Swanson. Um, and the last part is at, and then it's C-O-N-E-J-O-U-S-D dot O-R-G. All right, Christopher. I want to thank you again for writing this book and just um, keep on, you know, keep, I hope, is your next book, are you thinking about something else? Along you know, I'm the thinking about line? a free agency book. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly what that'll look like yet. I'm excited to spend some time this summer thinking about a book that deals with free agency and the themes of free agency and a more contemporary book, like maybe a LeBron, Kobe, Peyton Manning, Alex Rodriguez kind of book. Oh, that would be, you know, because as you said that, and I read a lot, and obviously doing this show and doing shows over the years, I read a lot of baseball books. I am a baseball historian, and you know, and I've never read a book about, the first year of free agency, the actual the, first year, the first you see year bits and pieces right. of it in various books, but a whole book about that and the results and the reaction of everyone, the fans, the media, everyone to that first year. That would be interesting. That would be really interesting. I had a, a Chris Kimball, who's another baseball historian, just said to me the other day. He said he'd heard that Charlie Finley once proposed free agency for everybody at the end of every season. Oh, man. <laughs> I hadn't heard and that one. At, oh, that I hadn't heard that something. one either, but it sounds like Charlie Finley, doesn't it? Oh, my God. Oh, that would have been his, and that's something. But, Krista, <laughs> again, thank you for being on the show. You bet, Look, Greg. Thank you. Hope to meet you sometime. You take care. Thanks so much. Absolutely. You too. Thanks, Greg. All right. All right. Bye. And, again, that was Krista Swanson, the author of the book, Baseball's power shift, and it's about the whole history of the labor movement in Major League Baseball, but not only that. It's about just the labor movement in general and just trying to get your rights, as we were talking about earlier. And I'm just, you know, get that book. It's on the University of Nebraska Press, Baseball's Power Shift. Check it out. I think you will enjoy it. And, again, you don't have to be a baseball fan to enjoy this book. But we're going to shift gears now because we're still, you know, I'm still doing the tribute to the – late, you know, great Prince. And I, you know, as I was, I've said on the previous shows since his passing that Prince was a strong proponent of rights, getting the rights of his recordings, his writing rights, everything. And he fought Warner Brothers forever. So I want you folks out there who listen, you know, listening, you listen, because I may be playing some of his music and some of his protégés on the show in a few minutes, but look at what Prince was really doing 
ignore the music and look at what he was trying to do. And his whole thing was about getting the rights that musicians deserve for the music, for the talent they have and the music that they write. And that's something that's very important, especially as an African-American musician. Because if you look at the history of music in this country in general, especially of African-Americans, you find out that a lot of folks, a lot of folks lost money, gave up their rights early on. I know a story about, there's a story about, the, a number of stories about folks like Fats Waller who used to just gamble all night and he would like sign his rights off. He didn't have any money on it, so he would give someone one of his songs and there goes the rights of a song. I know the song, you know, folks who thought they owned their rights, you know, their songs and everything and found out the small print that there was some lawyer who had that. In fact, you know, there are a number, a number of folks that did that. You know, James Brown, you just name them. You know, they, you know, they sold their rights away, not realizing it. Little Richard, he always complained about that. So that's what Prince was about, fighting for the rights of what you do as an entertainer, as an artist. So we're going to get to some of his music and the music of his prodigies. I'm going to start off with this young lady who's been in the news a lot, talking about the legacy of Prince. I'm talking about Sheila E. And I'm going to play right now. This is Sheila E. and Holly Rock. So let's hear that on the Root Show.
kind of funny. What's happening with the gas? Well, filling up cost moves your money. But it just don't last long. Until the the price of all is out of their control. Until that move it to the birds. Cause the us is getting old. Well, we've got to raise up. Raise up your head.
Oh, yes, we continue our Prince tribute there. That was the one and only Prince, and that was Dirty Mind. Before that, we did Elect Erotic City, then 200 Balloons, then Kiss. Then we did one of his, you know, one of the folks that he got involved with who was an inspiration for him, the great Larry Graham, and that was Raise Up, and that had Prince in the background. And we started to set off with Sheila E., and that was Holly Rock, and Prince was on that one, too, on the Root and Root Shoot. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're just tuning in, this is Greg Rasheed. And we'll continue our tribute to Prince, and we're playing the folks that, besides his music, the folks that inspired him, and he eventually helped them with their music, like a Larry Graham, like Sheila E., and this next person, who is actually a gospel performer, and actually we've done a couple of shows about her on the Root and Root Show. And I'm talking about the wonderful Mavis Staples. And she, yes, and some of you don't know, yeah, she hooked up with Prince. And they put out a couple of great, and I'm going to play this, Staples, Time Waits for No One, featuring Prince, Time Waits for No One, on the Root and Root Show. Give you more time Time to get yourself together Time to make up your mind I want forever love You want one night fantasy While I'm sitting here waiting on you You know somebody somewhere waiting on me
situation in Los Angeles.
cases I sit here in uh, Denver, Colorado live on April 29th the snow comes down but that was Prince again as we do our tribute and we've done three shows tributes to Prince as we could do a whole 20 years of Prince music but that was Prince in seven, 17 days before that on the Root and Root show we did uh, Baltimore then we did Wendy and Lisa two of his band members and that was Honeymoon Express and before that we did his childhood best friend Andre Zamone, which is easy for me to say, Andre Zamone, and that was so fine. And he was married to a very fine woman, the lovely Jody Watley. But anyway, and before that, we did Jesse Johnson's review and Be Your Man. Then we did Prince, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. Then we did The Family, a forgotten group. Um, and that was Screams of Passion. I just love that song. Then we did The Time with Morris Day and Seven 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 ninety three eleven, and I'm sure a number of you tried to call that number when that that song came out. And we started to set off with the great Mavis Staples, and time waits for no one, and time never does wait for no one. We just got to proceed here on the Rooty Root Show, and I'm just happy to have you listening in. If you're listening live this evening, or you're listening, this show will come on Wednesday on KUHS Denver Radio and Television created by the great Henry Archuleta, and I'll be on that. This is how weird this is. So tomorrow, I'll be on live on KUHS, but this show will come on the following week, take, but that's that's a that's how the world works. That's how the cyber world works, and you can pick us up, you know, listen to us on KUHS, Denver Radio and Television, or you can, you know, a lot of people listen at their convenience on iTunes or various places on the Internet. If you want to reach me, you can go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can go to my Twitter account, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F, as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam, hashtag Unifix. You can go to the blogtalkradio.com site, look for Root and Root Show, and leave your comments, as some people have done on there. You can also... Go to, and by the way, as far as Twitter, I'm getting a lot of folks on Twitter, you know, just like my, besides liking the show, just like some of the comments I make on there, and I really appreciate that. You can also uh, email me at unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam, at hotmail.com, and I'd like to hear from you there, but we have a growing family here, and this show has been on for three years, and we're just going to keep on doing it. 
no matter what part of the country we are in, because we're just moving around right now and just so happy to be back in Denver and happy to do this show for you besides doing the musical tribute to Prince. Also, I want to thank again Krister Swanson, the author of the book Baseball's Power Shift. That's on the University of Nebraska Press for being on today. And as I said before, it's more than a baseball book. It's about labor history in the latter part of the 20th century pertaining not only to baseball, but to just, you know, all facets of life in general and unions. And you've got so many, you know, politicians now who want to get rid of unions and just, you know, it's a whole, and we've done shows on that. We'll continue to do more shows on that issue about unions because there's so many folks don't realize the strength of unions and just, and that's something that, you know, I one of the things I learned from my mother as far as when she was out on strike and she was marching in the union, you know, for her union. So that's something that be grateful for and be thankful that unions are out here and support them and support, you know, like I said earlier also, because Prince wanted to make sure that musicians got their rights and he basically struck against Warner Brothers, the first company to sign him, and he got his rights. And that's the thing you got to remember. So as you listen to Prince's music, please remember the things that he did, be it doing, you know, appearing in Baltimore and doing a song in honor of Baltimore and what was going on there with the Freddie Gray case and just the things he's done in private that are coming out now as far as helping a lot of African-American organizations throughout the country and helping people in need. I mean, just helping people. It's just amazing the things that he did, helping fellow musicians, average people, just people, anyone. Prince was just, you know, he was he was not a prince, he was a king. I mean, he's just a king among people. And just, you know, just look at him that way and respect and honor him and, you know, play the music too. But just think about his, what he did, what he brought to this earth and just thankful for that and just thankful, you know, to be able to play the music here on the Root & Root Show. But again, this is Greg Rashid and we're going to get ready to get out of here. But we'll see you the next time on the Root & Root Show again. The shows on the show, basically, the subjects are basically created mostly by listeners like you out there. So kindly, as I said earlier, send your information as far as interest and topics that you would like to have covered in music, musicians you'd like me to play here on the Root Rope Show. So again, this is Greg Rasheed. Go in love and go in peace. And we'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. Thank you.